I found that I really particularly value um, being able to maintain that memory with the skull and the antlers um, when it's possible to keep that connection just really live. And so, um, and you know, I'll go and like touch it and, and like the memories will like flood back, you know, and I remember tying it onto my backpack and carrying it out and how hard it was to get through the trees. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. It is the 3rd of February, 2022. For those of you who are new here, this show is out every two weeks, and it's alternating between the Living with Nature series, which is presented by Swarovski Optic, and that's what you're about to hear now, and a longer-form conversation with a host of different people from around the planet, from explorers to biologists hunters, fishers, and everything in between. Along with hosting this podcast, I am the Conservation Director at Modern Huntsman, which is a biannual publication dedicated to the sustainable use of wild resources and conservation. You can get the latest volume, Volume 8, all about conservation on the continent of Africa at modernhuntsman.com. I am also a filmmaker, which is actually what takes up most of my year, and you can see some of that work on byronpace.com or follow me on the various socials where I am at Byron J. Pace pretty much everywhere. But anyway, to this episode, which, as I said, is the Living with Nature series, it is based around five questions that I ask my guests about how they connect with nature. The intro to that was two weeks ago, so you can go back and listen to that if you want a bit of background about why this series started. But in this episode, you're going to be hearing from Lindsay Davis. She's a friend of the show, a contributor to Modern Huntsman, actually. Um, She's an ecologist, an advocate of citizen science, and the current vice president of the Outdoor Alliance, to mention just a few of the things that she's involved in. Uh, But before we jump into that, just a quick shout out to the top tier Patreon supporters this month, who include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting.co.uk, James Marchington, the guys at South Esher Stalking, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and Colin Knight. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. And with that said, please welcome Lindsay Davis to the show. Lindsay, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast, or welcome back to the Into the Wilderness podcast, because you've been on you've been on before. It's been a long time since you and I have actually seen each other in person. I think actually, thinking about it now, it was probably in Dallas two years ago. Yeah, two years now. Yeah. Two years. Amazing. Wow. It doesn't doesn't feel doesn't like that long. <laughs> no, we've we've been trying to line this up uh for a little bit for you to go through this Living with Nature series that's um you know being presented by Srofsky Optics. And between me being very busy last year filming projects and you being an impossible person to tie down because you were also doing a lot of things, <laughs> we finally managed to do it. But we're doing it because you've kind of had you, you've been sat on the sofa for a little while, not because you're being lazy or because it's the festive period or post festive period, but because you've had a, a, a major shift in your life, I suppose, in a way. Yeah, I um, endured or faced, facing it is what it feels like, um, getting a very old and um, painful knee injury fixed in December. So on the 22nd, I'm just about two, two plus weeks out right now from getting a partial knee replacement, which is crazy at my age. I think that the average age of people who get that surgery is like 67. Um, so, uh, but I had just destroyed my knee um, starting when I was in, you know, 19 or so playing sports and just over and over again had big ligament reconstructions and injuries and such. And, and my lifestyle just, uh, 
just used it all up, Byron. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I had a, a big surgery and everything's going really well so far. Um, I definitely, if anybody ever wants to talk about uh, knee pain, knee problems or health in that regard, I'm all ears and I have been really grateful for the healthcare professionals and kind of support team that has showed up in my community and also just people on Instagram who've, who've gone through similar things and um, the, the general conversation around health in my life has been uh, really enjoyable. So yes, I'm couch bound and trying to be patient about it right now. Which is why I was able to lock you down for a date. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> yeah. grateful for that. Um, but uh, tell me, just before we get into these questions, had, you, had it got to the point where it was severely impacting your life to do the kind of thing? Because you're a very active person. You spend a lot of time in the outdoors, a lot of time fishing, but also just in the outdoors in general. Could you, were you getting to the point where you could no longer do those things? Yeah, it's been this really precipitous drop off in capability over the last couple of years. It's always been something I've had chronic pain around. And usually I've just managed it because the passion for the things that I'm doing um, sort of distracts me from that pain. And I also do a ton of physical therapy and just rehab. And, you know, anytime I was coming home from a day of hunting or hiking or something, I would be icing and doing e-stem and taking supplement, you know, just had this regiment to try and push this out as far as I possibly could. Uh, but yeah, it got to the point where nothing I was doing was pain-free from waking up in the morning and getting out of bed to, you know, of course, like elk hunting and carrying a pack. So, um, it, that doesn't just, help. it just, no, it does not help. Uh, but I have a really awesome, you know, it's so important with these kinds of things to find healthcare professionals who um, treat you like the athlete you are and respect your lifestyle. And I've definitely found those people here in Salt Lake. And, um, you know, they're the kind of folks that say, we don't want you living in a bubble. We don't want you stopping doing the things you're doing. We know you're going to do these things anyway, like live your life and we'll mop it up on Monday when, when you come <laughs> back and see us. And let's figure out how to, you know, keep you doing the things that you love in a way that also supports longevity. So it's, it's been cool trying to figure out what that balance is for myself and have tons of support along the way. Have you, uh, did they rebuild your knee with bits of you or do you have bits of somebody else in your knee or is it all synthetic components? <laughs> I actually have like a huge metal implant. Um, so I have a proper bionic knee, an artificial knee, because uh, it was just collapsed and bone on bone. Um, in fact, when they opened it up, the surgeon told my husband, he was like, I've never seen a knee this bad in someone her age. She's a coper. And I was like, well, at least everybody just, you know, everybody knows how much I was sucking it up. But um, yeah, it's cool now because even just a couple weeks out, like it's, it's super painful, but the pain's not in the spot where it used to be. So it really shows that this might really improve my life. So I'm, I'm pumped. I'm getting excited about the season and, um, already drew some cool tags this year that I'm getting really excited about. So I think, you know, those are the things that keep me eyes on the prize right now. I'm planning a caribou hunt in Alaska this fall, and that's been, um, Amazing. in the works for years now and um, definitely strategically put that at the end of this recovery path so that I would have something to keep me focused and keep my spirits up. 
With that said, let's jump into the first question then, because I think you're kind of alluding to maybe some of the answers to these, but how do you, for question one, how do you connect with nature on a regular basis? So I love this question because there are a thousand ways to do this. And I think that figuring out what this means for us all as individuals is like one of the most enjoyable things on life's path. But uh, for me, I've really found, I was thinking about this and food is the way that I feel the closest connection. And I think it's because I have these moments all throughout the year where I'm either gardening or hunting or harvesting or searching for wild plants. And I'm constantly, you know, finding those opportunities to, to collect and harvest and store and, and like bring nature into my life by the way of food. And then it's like these days where I'm only working and I'm on the computer for 10 hours and then I get to have dinner and it's this amazing elk steak or even just the simple things of a cup of nettle tea that I harvested, um, I get to bring that really, those memories back of what, how I acquired those things, where I was, what the day felt like. Um, It's this really special way that I can kind of reflect and relish and be nurtured by my relationship to wild places, um, no matter what's happening in my life. So uh, I think oftentimes there's, you know, I don't necessarily get to get outside or get into the mountains every day, but um, food makes me feel that connection kind of no matter what's happening. It's interesting because when I interviewed Ben, which was only like a week or two back, he was saying how his relationship with nature had shifted because he had done for, for the very first time in his life. I'm not quite sure how old Ben is, but he's I guess he's 40 plus. And uh, he had gone hunting for the first time in his life. And he felt like his connection had shifted because he was now kind of participating in it. And from what you've just said there, I think it's interesting to see that as your sort of constant connection because it is is something that you've kind of participate you've definitely participated in and taken from nature whereas i would imagine a lot of people thinking about the uh, the the question if you're thinking about it as as a podcast listener at home it would probably be about being out in nature but this is almost like back in your home taking the outside in yeah and even the garden you know like little memories that come up from just time in my backyard especially now that it's winter time and everything's dormant and um you know I'm I'm not getting out I'm actually quite restricted in what I can do I'm feeling that the importance of that connection more than ever because I can um sink into those experiences and kind of time travel a little bit through the meals that we're able to have so I yeah love it's, it's it's beautiful special for for people who uh, hunting something living might be just a step too far, what are the easy ways for them to enjoy a little taste of what you're talking about, about participating in something outdoors, but being able to bring it inside to your kitchen as sustenance? And I, I maybe yeah, I, I mean gardening is one thing. Like a lot, you, you, I think a lot of people will think, "Well, I can go and plant carrots or grow potatoes or something." But I'm thinking more on the kind of wild harvesting side. Totally, yeah. I love I love this question because hunting takes a ton of work, knowledge, planning, skills, 
um, you know, process the tags with the state, all that kind of thing. It's a, it's a much more complicated way to build that connection. And I think there's dozens of, um, steps that we can all enjoy kind of getting to that point over the summer. I taught a class, which was all about, uh, the 10 wild edible weeds that you can find anywhere on the continent, no matter where you are in cities or, um, even out in the mountains and such. And, uh, awesome. I think, yeah, it's super cool because I actually, um, flew up to Montana to teach the class at the Sitka headquarters and had, you know, had never been there, but I was pretty confident just based on what these plants are, that they would be available in this like office park next to the freeway. Yeah. Um, I know we miss I, each other by like two weeks. Cause I was there like just after oh, you finished um, up. <laughs> yeah. But I went up there and within five minutes of walking around this building, I found seven of the plants on my list um, that all present some type of edible or medicinal value. And I think um, people often overlook weeds, you know, but they're these incredible pioneer species that have like can really become your your first aid kit or your next superfood. Um, and they're everywhere. They're free, you know, and a lot of other cultures things like dandelions are like incredible superfoods, but we've just framed them in such a way where we don't think about them like that. But um, so I think that's a really cool place to start because it doesn't matter where you are. You don't really need to leave your house or your neighborhood. They're free. They're available. They're easy to identify. They present tons of awesome healing qualities. Um, And then beyond that, it's like once you start to, so I think like, starting to identify plants and um, mushrooms and things like that, like getting field guides and learning how to key out species and just study detail and things so that you can feel confident identifying different species is an awesome place to start. And then you can grab those books and take them on a walk and get into the foothills or get into the mountains or, you know, spend time looking at different seasons that are happening and what might be popping up in all those different points of the year. And um, it's super fun. And I think a really kind of low barrier to entry way to start becoming a wild food harvester and someone who's knowledgeable about those sorts of things. That's a, that's a, a great answer to the question. Thank you, Lindsay. Well, with that, let's go to question two, which is that do you have any good examples of how companies, people, or organizations are helping to rebuild this connection between people and nature? This is kind of a, like a perfect lead-in from what the one example that you've given as an individual yourself in terms of recommendations. But do you have any other really good examples of things that are working and rebuilding that kind of broken bond with yeah. nature that that people have now? Totally. Yeah. I, I love thinking about this. And I think where my mind kind of originally went, is like, there's amazing uh, hunters and harvesters and farmers and poets and artists and all sorts of people that I've been inspired by for decades now. But, um, but this question makes me think about something brand new, um, which is sort of on the more cutting edge side of how mainstream society is starting to think about nature. And um, I recently got uh, introduced to the folks over at Nature Quant, and they're doing some really interesting stuff um, with clinical trials around um, what the effects of time in nature and 
being exposed to the outdoors actually does for our health. And this sounds very basic to those of us who love the outdoors and understand that time spent outside or time spent in a wild place restores our spirit and makes us feel better, you know, gets fresh air into our lungs. There's always, we've known those, um, those anecdotes and those feelings first, first ever, you know, and, but now we're getting to the point where, um, mainstream society is looking at it from a clinical standpoint through these folks work. And I love just the, um, the potential that that unlocks for where we go from here. You know, a lot of the things that this group is talking about is, um, being the fourth ring on the Apple watch so that you are actually prescribed, okay, I need to get 30 minutes of time outside because that's a benefit to my mental health and your doctor's tied into this and you know your whole care team is thinking about it or it's part of how we look at the school system. And I love just thinking about how this could be a more mainstream concept rather than you know sort of the expedition style way of thinking of being outside that can be super overwhelming to folks. And then the other side of the project that they are working on is this thing called a nature score where they're actually looking at urban areas um, in rural areas, but uh, thinking about like, where are the trees? Where is their waterfront? Where is their fresh air? And, and actually grading areas based on the availability of nature, parks, all that sort of stuff. And um, I think this is going to be really motivating for city planners, local legislators, all the folks that are like, well, I'm going to want my city to be, you know, in the top 10 of the nature score or, Hey, why didn't we um, rank higher? And it's like, Oh, because there's these large communities that actually don't have access to a park within walking distance of their house. And this was so critical during COVID when all the lockdowns were happening and um, the trust for public lands did a study that showed that a hundred million people were without access of a park within walking distance of home in the U.S. So that's just like devastating. And so I think a lot of this research and sort of the more empirical way of going about looking at nature and its effects on our health and well-being are going to help a lot of the sort of structural aspects of who gets exposed to it and gets access and where it is and where the funding goes and how we prioritize it as a society. That's interesting. I have mentioned this on the podcast at least once before, but in Scotland, the GPs here will can actually prescribe a green prescription. And it's literally on a green notepad. And it is, I prescribe you for some of the issues that you've come to see me for, for 30 minutes a day outside. And I want you to walk along the river or take a walk That's in the park. Cool. And they, uh, yeah, it, it, I, and I, I suppose they're seeing it now, uh, pretty much what you're saying, is that it is a way to mitigate some of the problems that people are otherwise medicating for. And if you take it a step further yeah. and you think about, well, in order to have these wild or natural spaces, they do cost something. They cost something to be maintained. There's an opportunity cost. You can always build on it. But if these open the, these uh, spaces in nature are good for people's health, which we we know that they are, then that actually has a value. So it's it's like it, it could be seen as an ecosystem service, which. Has yeah. a value and so should be valued as such because it mean in a country like here in in the UK where I am, where there's a national health service, by people spending more time in nature and reducing say the issues that they might have around mental health, 
they're now not going to see the doctor, which is a cost on the health service by the fact that they have access to nature. Mm -hmm. So somebody is paying for it somewhere. So that's fascinating. I hadn't heard yeah. of the organization you're talking about, so I guess people can go and check them out. Yeah, it's it's Nature Quant, and they have a really cool website that explains what they're doing um, a lot better than I am. But uh, yeah, I think it shows incredible promise for kind of where the value of the outdoors is going to be accepted and prioritized. Question three. Is there a conservation story happening right now that you're particularly passionate about? And I'm sure you probably have a million to choose from, but is there one is there one sort of standout? I do have a favorite. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Tell me. I, I am and it's it's kind of just a, a general concept, but there's so much progress happening with wildlife corridors right now. Yay. And I think it's just endlessly cool because it's combining all of these different things um, to solve a very real pressing modern issue and this collision of development and humans and wildlife. Um, so for years, I've been a part of this citizen science study here in Utah, where we use motion sensor cameras to measure human disturbance on the wildlife populations and study where the population densities are. And all of that information creates these incredible maps that show, you know, where the highest density is, where they're getting stuck, um, all that stuff. And then of course, like in all the bordering States around me here in Utah, especially in Wyoming, you know, they've been doing this work for years with all of the collaring work that they're doing of migration of mule deer in the West and, um, so all of that research is just starting to be um, impossible to argue with. And the maps and data, you know, of course, like all the work that Joe Reese has done over the years, documenting the migrations, it's incredible. And when you have that data and those stories, you can't argue with what's needed. And we're seeing funding go like just this past year in the infrastructure package, there was funding for wildlife corridors and major funding. And it's so exciting to me to see that happening and have it be, um, okay, this is a part of how we're looking at transportation now. What are we going to be doing for the wildlife that are also, you know, colliding with our impacts? And um, so that use of technology is, is just creating a ton of proof and um, and I love seeing it. And there's a huge overpass that was built in Parley's Canyon up I-80, uh, which is a big one coming you know across the country and in and out of Salt Lake here. And um, I've seen a ton of press and media about how many hundreds of animals crossed the bridge in the last year. And people are just they, you know they feel a part of it, and they're able to um, kind of get this glimpse of normally unseen wildlife. Um, crossing this awesome bridge and um, it's cool. And so I think people are super engaged and I love seeing all of the different conservation groups in my state, like the Utah Wildlife Federation has convened all these different uh, working, a working group that has all the different interest groups around wildlife and everybody's coming to the table for this concept. So I love seeing its progress, and I think the, really the sky's the limit with this kind of stuff. As we, you know, we understand animal behavior and their needs, and there's just it's such a pressing time as um, all of the wintering grounds are like continually under pressure, and um, we're just building, building, building more and more. And I think 
you know, the, the true conservationist in me wants to say no more buildings, but um, the reality is, is that they're going to happen. So how do we do it in a way that makes the most sense for wildlife? And that's what this research is making us, uh, that's what's making it possible. It's such a great example because it is applicable probably in every country in the world. And, and necessary in almost every country in the world, because otherwise, we talk, we we talk, or we have talked a lot about uh, in the media about fences and the issue with with fences and, and agriculture for the movement of animals. But roads are basically like a fence, particularly big networks of roads, and then it forces mm-hmm. these island populations essentially. That's how they behave because they either can't cross yeah. them or they try and cross them and they die. So you don't end up with a lot of crossovers. So what? Yeah, what a what a brilliant example. Uh, to question four, is there someone in particular who inspires you and is doing great work in the outdoor space? You know, I think that for me, this is it's not somebody in particular, but it's this general movement that's happening right now. Um, you know, I work on the daily in the recreation space and I'm largely representing a coalition of businesses and the recreation economy to the government. So my, my day to day, I'm championing (laughs) these things that we're talking about and trying to get people to value and understand, you know, the economic, the positive economic impacts of recreation, how that ties into public lands, health uh, and funding and, um, the general sort of health and well-being of Americans, and uh, it, it's incredible to see this movement over the past year and a half, largely pushed by COVID and lockdowns, and people rediscovering their passion and value for the outdoors over that time period. Um, and there's so much cool stuff happening that I think is really going to get us. Um, over the line into a true 21st century recreation economy and recreation infrastructure, which of course has direct impacts for aquatic species health, wildlife, habitat, ecosystem health, the national park system, all the funding that's going towards wildfire mitigation, all the things that are just direly needed right now. Um, because recreation is such an economic driver um, and we're able to tell that story, uh, it allows there to be kind of statistics in a really clear way of thinking about the benefits to society and sort of the natural world. Um, and there's such cool stuff happening. We just, uh, right before the end of the year, had the first ever title hearing on recreation in the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, which is a big deal. That's never happened before. They were looking at um, over a dozen different bills that would improve recreation permitting processes and all sorts of different things for how the agencies manage for recreation and how the public gets to interact with it. Um, And so all of that is just, you know, the government responds to what generally the people want and what people are asking for and people are demanding. um, In addition to like, you know, they're going to national parks. So the agencies are saying, hey, we need help. We have all these new visitors. And um, so this just general trend about how important the outdoors is now to Americans is creating all of this opportunity um, that's going to, I think, change how we think about land management in this country. You know, like a lot of the policies that were put in place decades ago 
um, recreation wasn't the number one thought. It was about logging or it was about a different type of management. And now we have proof that that's actually one of the highest uses of the land for both the ecosystem and for people. So I think that this is going to create an opportunity for just better land management across the board. And I'm really excited to see um, so many different stakeholders kind of singing from the same songbook and and a time where things are super divided. It's like recreation is winning and it's the thing that people are able to come to the table together about no matter what their political identity might be. And that's just super cool to see. Not to dive into this too much, but with more people realizing what they get out of being in the great outdoors. How do you balance that with impact and being able to fund mitigation measures for the fact that there is now way more people outside? A a very easy, simple example is just walking trail corrosion, uh, sorry, corrosion, (laughs) a piece of metal, erosion from footfall. Yep. This is uh, entirely an issue of um, people not knowing that there are plenty of places to go. Um, So I think we get these clogged popular places and for whatever reason, you know, there's, there can be another campground or another trailhead that's just a few miles away that might not be on the map or might, you know, need Um, You know, there's a ton of deferred maintenance on public lands right now, which is a large reason why the Great American Outdoors Act was passed last year. And there's now five years of funding that's being pumped into. That was um, exciting. Yeah. And it's like to make sure the bridges are sound and the bathrooms are sound and the campgrounds can stay open so that people don't have to go to just one spot. So we're, you know, all of the agencies and land managers right now are trying to keep up on the infrastructure side and sort of restore the things that haven't been kept up or managed in decades so that we do have enough places for people to go. And just looking at like how much public land is available in this country, it is absolutely an issue of disbursement. And I think, you know, some of the, um, there's a bill called the SOAR Act, which is about simplifying outdoor access. And there's a bunch of other bills in that recreation process package that change how the agencies share information about visitation. Um, And if the agencies are all using, you know, the BLM, National Forest, State Parks, everybody are all using the same um, kind of data tracking processes, then there's no reason that you know, I think some, and also using kind of the public and private sector right now, if you look up a CVS in your neighborhood or Walgreens, you know, you can tell if it's busy because it says busy and you're like, okay, I think I'll plan my trip in an hour or two when it's not busy, but there's no way to do that for a trailhead. Uh, It might be cool if there is one. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. We have all this modern technology that's tracking where we're going and um, and people, you know, especially recreators are using this stuff all the time to track their mileage and all that stuff. And if you know a trailhead's going to be, the parking lot's going to be full, you can pick one that's just down the road or going into a different place. So I think, you know, we just need to really modernize how we're, um, how we're thinking about and planning for recreation. And there's, there's a ton of irons in the fire for how we do that. And of course, you know, managing for the natural resource is everybody's priority. Like our industry doesn't exist without healthy uh, natural resources. So um, I think oftentimes, you know, we can get dinged for being extractive or, you know, there's all sorts of ways that people kind of 
talk poorly about recreation, but in truth, when you look at where the funding for public lands and conservation is coming from, it's coming from all the gas taxes and all the registration taxes and the excise taxes and the use fees. And, and so it really is the money that's driving, um, keeping these places open and available. To the last question, do you have, of all the cool things that you do and, and places you've been, do you have a singular, real standout memory of connecting with nature? Oh my goodness. I am so hungry. You can only on. pick one. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have one that is just front and center for me right now, which is this October, I harvested my first ever bull elk. And um I just, you know, got the Euro mount hung up on my wall in the kitchen. And so I'm in that phase where every time I walk through the kitchen, I sort of stop and look and just feel an incredible amount of feelings. And um, it is one of the coolest things I've ever done. One of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, I had hunted a cow season, I think twice before and a bull season last year, unsuccessful. Um, and this year I spent eight days in the mountains, uh, pursuing elk in one of the lowest success units in the state of Utah. Um, it's a hard spot to hunt and ended up making it happen on the very last morning on the very last ridge that I was like, I'm wow. going to punch into this ridge. I'm going home. Um, and I think every day past day three, I wanted to go home I, and, and had, you know, the thoughts in my head of maybe this just isn't for me. I don't know if I can do this anymore. Okay. I'll give it one more day. Okay. I'll give it one more day and just kept doubling down and recommitting to the next day that was ahead of me because there was a lot of, um, mental hardship, physical hardship, and just heartbreak of blowing opportunities or missing opportunities or being just out of range and just feeling how absolutely incredibly challenging it is to pursue bull elk. So um, managed to make it happen on the very last morning in a way that just was the coolest. Like I ended up finding, you know, we'd found a couple elk here and there um, and the last morning I ended up stumbling into like 60 elk and I cow called, made a perfect shot. The two bulls that I was looking at were sparring. It was just the most mm, incredible. awesome experience. Um, and then had friends who helped me pack out and then spent the next four days uh, actually butchering the meat at home, which I love. <laughs> it's a butchering. lot of meat. And I know. And I usually, it's like this party in my kitchen where we're drinking whiskey and we're listening to music and we're staying up late and we're just so happy. And by day three, I was like, okay, I'm done with this mess. You know, <laughs> like this is an incredible amount of work. Uh, but yeah, it's, it took all of my skills, Byron. It took absolutely everything I had from, you know, my tracking and nature awareness, my mental determination, every ounce of physical um, fortitude that I could drum up. And so just to feel the, like the immense challenge of that. And, um, especially as I was kind of ready to quit many times before it happened to have it be successful, it just feels like magic in my world. That is, that is tremendous. 
Uh, and I, I know what you're saying about the butchering process because I, I really like butchering, but not when I have like four carcasses hanging up. By the time you get to like the third <laughs> one, it's like, I'm done. In fact, at, when I get off this uh, podcast with you, I need to go and stir my Sikadia stew that I'm making that's on the cooker right now <laughs> from something I butchered like yeah. two weeks ago or something. But I just want to ask you one last question yeah. before we wrap up, which is, I mean, you've done, given us this a very short but amazing account of that experience, but you started off by saying, that every time you walk into the room, that the the skull and antlers is on your wall, you get some of that back. To many people, they won't get that. They're okay. Well, I understand the appreciation of eating the meat, but do you really need to put these antlers and the skull of the animal on the wall? What do you think yeah. of? What well, do you feel? What emanates from it when you're seeing it? You know, it's really similar to how we started this conversation, which is that nature connection, right? And like how memories can transport us to a time and an experience that we've had that was, you know, deeply physical, deeply visual, deeply memorable. And, um, you know, that meat's going to be gone at some point. And sure, I'll be able to enjoy it and feel those feelings I was describing, but the same thing happens when I get to look at that skull, you know? And so I think the, the trophy itself is, is really important. And that's something that I, I didn't necessarily feel in the beginning of hunting. Um, and I have felt that way after harvesting a cow elk where I didn't save the skull. Um, and once that meat was gone, it was like, Oh, I, I've lost, you know, I only have the the memories that I can conjure up myself from my brain now or the photos, which is plenty and enough. I know there's a lot of issues around this topic, but I found that I really particularly value um, being able to maintain that memory with the skull and the antlers um, when it's possible to keep that connection just really live. And so, um, and, you know, I'll go and like touch it and, and like the memories will like flood back, you know, and I remember tying it onto my backpack and carrying it out and how hard it was to get through the trees with these antlers on my back and thinking about, wow, these elk have to do this every day. How do they bushwhack, you know, and just all that stuff. So it just becomes very personal very quickly. And I, I really value that. Well, that's a beautiful answer to a very difficult question. And with that, thank you so much, Lindsay, for coming back on the show and sharing your living with nature thoughts. Thank you, Byron, for having me. And thank you for being such an inspiration. I love following your globetrotting adventures and conservation. So keep it up. And I hope I can see you again in person soon. Me too. Let's plan on it. 